and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me, as always, is Jane Litt from Dear Author. Today we are talking about defining blue-collar heroes, whether they really exist in romance, and we talk a little bit about what drives me bonkers in sex scenes and erotica, whether we have any books in common, and whether Jane can convince me to read any of the Kristen Ashley books. The music you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the podcast about the artist and where you can get this song if you're digging it, and I hope you are. And Harlequin, our sponsor, has some information they'd like you to have. Harlequin's Christmas countdown is on. You can check harlequin.com every day for deals and free stuff every day until Christmas. Sometimes it's a 50% off all ebooks coupon. Sometimes it's a buy one, get one free, but check every day and there's awesome things. And now, on with the podcast. As I was thinking about the topic after I'd emailed you the the topic as a suggestion, the fact of the matter is there are very few, I think, truly blue-collar heroes. And what I mean by that is even these um, individuals that were typecasting as blue-collar heroes are really small business owners. They own their own construction company or they own their own electrical company. I think they're a far cry from the millionaires and billionaires of um, many contemporary romances. So I'm not quite sure, do we uh, identify them as blue-collar heroes because they work with their hands primarily instead of wearing suits to work? Is that our divisible uh, line? I was thinking of a slightly different definition. Um, I noticed the same thing when I started thinking about blue-collar heroes. And I, w- and I was thinking about this: all of the small towns romances even in the small town romances there's always there's always a navy seal or somebody in the military like there's just a random navy seal or some military or highly placed very muscular muscular um mysterious somewhat authority figure there are people who own restaurants or who are chefs or doctors there's always the 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 man of mystery but you're right because so many of what might be considered blue collar is a small business owner, <laughs> even with the small towns that, <laughs> that all have um, professional cyclists. <laughs> I don't think the uh, the professional competitive bicy- bicyclists are, are necessarily blue collar. Now, I grew up in, in Pittsburgh. And when I was growing up, blue collar for me meant industrial work, people who worked in steel mills. And my understanding of the definitive term was that blue collar was a manual labor and white collar was you wear a suit and you go to an office. But the definition sort of changes a lot because so many of the heroes that I was thinking of own their own construction companies or they own their own electrical companies and they do specific manual jobs, but they are the owners of their jobs. I did a post um a while back, maybe a year or so ago, about the Heroes Agency and how it was important um, <clears throat> that individuals ha- have a control over the outcomes of their own lives. Yes. And we were specifically referring, talking about why there's so few lower class individuals written about in historical books. Like, and I'm not talking about merchants who are considered lower class, but I'm talking about like servants, butlers, footmen, um, valets, that sort of thing. Right, right. 
but those individuals serve kind of at the whim of their employer. And they had very little agency. And I think that the fantasy of romance is hard to um, buy into if uh, the character, at least one of them, doesn't have full control over the outcome of their lives. So I think that that's why, for some reason, we gravitate toward individuals who are... um, or that that's why if you see a person who has manual labor, he's in charge of his own life in terms of dictating his own hours, his own future, and so forth. Even when you have books that feature law enforcement, it's all often a detective rather than a patrol officer. Yeah, for you example. never you never see the small town traffic cop romance. Or the <laughs> or the rookie who has to, you know, stand on the parade route in ninety degree weather. There's always an authority and you're you're using the exact word. It's it's the agency. Because you don't want to believe that the hero is going to, you know, get told, hey, you're getting laid off. Sorry. No, very rarely. I thought even, you know, or in particularly, this is obvious in this new adult books. You see a lot of these kids having a lot of money, whether it's inherited or um, mostly inherited. Yes, often. In romances, it's. The fantasy isn't necessarily the type of hero's work, but the um, ability for those concerns, uh, monetary concerns, to not uh, be controlling one's destiny. Yes, you always want to believe that when the happy ever after comes, that their happiness and security is not dependent on the whim of some larger other and that they have enough money to survive. And I think you and I talked about this a really long time ago, or, or maybe I read you writing about it, that, that wealth is sort of a default assurance that money problems are never going to be what breaks them up. It's never going to be money that causes a problem. And one thing that I like about, for example, the Kowalski stories is that there are moments where money is a problem. There are moments when money is not a problem. Like in the last book, um, the hero kept putting expenses for the for the family lodge on his business account because he knew that the lodge didn't have money and he owned a construction company. So he just bought the roofing equipment and put it on his company card. The The money that the family had for the lodge was a concern and the fact that it was limited was a concern. But there was still money there. It wasn't like, well, we don't have it so we can't do it. There was a way to get it done. There was some money and reassurance that they wouldn't be you know, cold with a hole in the roof. Even when you have characters that have economic disparity where the heroine is very wealthy and the hero is not, mm-hmm. the hero is not impoverished. No, Whereas no. you see a lot of impoverished heroines. Like I, <laughs> I remember reading one Harlequin Presents where the woman was so poor uh, and, and, and she was so poor I, I didn't understand how she actually uh, survive, but she was so poor. She didn't have any furniture. She couldn't afford food. Her uh, coat was described as like threadbare. Yep. And, uh, you know, I thought that she was being depicted like a, a waif on the street. You know, she was yep, yep. one step up from a homeless person. She's Fantine from Les Miserables. She's like emaciated Anne Hathaway. But you'd never see that with a hero. Even, uh, I think of um, Linda Howard. She always goes to great pains to identify why her individual heroes 
are secure enough to be a hero. Whether it's, uh, I remember Dane in Dr- Dream Man, she's like, well, he doesn't spend very much money, so he saved it, and he's got uh, paid off his house, he's got money in the bank, that sort of thing. I mean, you know, the fact that these heroes all are like mortgage free is pretty astonishing. <laughs> Well, I think the first recollection I have of the non-suited hero um, would Which be makes it sound in, like he's running around naked. <laughs> well, I don't. I I don't have a bear, very good. Um, I, I don't know that we can call him blue collar. Maybe a, no. I don't a, think that works. I think you. It, I think non-suited is the best term. Maybe another reader. I mean, obviously, there's the plethora of um, detectives. Uh, police officers and detectives that populated category romances. Yes. Um, there's also ranchers. Ranchers were hugely popular back in the 80s. I remember reading, you know, Last Small, for example, or Diana Palmer as she made her way around the United States. Yep. Um, so it's not true that the millionaires and billionaires dominated romance forever. Because there were definitely um, a whole host of archetypes in category romances, from the police officer to the the ranch hand. Uh, for example, Anne McAllister, um, she has a great series set in the West about um, individuals who are ranch hands, which I think you know is a pr- pretty modest um, lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And they certainly didn't live in big hand, big houses, and they didn't live in, um, they didn't have big spreads. A lot of these individuals worked for other people, and they lived in small houses. I remember one um, book; the couple had like a two-bedroom house. So I think it's. Uh, I don't want to say it's. This is the first one that I remember. It's uh, by Jennifer Cruzy, "Crazy for You," and Nick, the hero is a mechanic and I think his brother um, and I, I can't remember if he and his brother Cone the the re- auto repair shop or that he works for his brother but I remember him not being super ambitious <laughs> and just generally um, you know working with his hands and um being kind of the opposite of the uh, millionaire billionaire trope. When I was thinking about the um, the idea of blue collar working class non suited heroes, there are a lot of them that blend some form of creativity with with business ownership that still labor, so that their labor is creating something. So there's the Nora Roberts Chesapeake Bay it's a quartet in the end it started out as a trilogy but it was a quartet by the end and they um become boat makers which is a pretty specialized and ultimately high-end um business operation but in the beginning I believe they were sort of scraping together what they needed to do so it was all very um labor focused but at the end they owned their business 
I'm trying to think. You mentioned the Kowalskis in your in your original email. Yeah, I think that Helen Cade uh, Diamond has her. Is it West Virginia or Virginia? I think no, it's, it's West Virginia. Virginia. It's West Virginia. Virginia small town series, um, and uh, her family owns a nursery. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the Kowalskis, and they're all kind of various small business owners. One's a fairly successful custom home builder in Boston. Another is a demolitions expert. Mm-hmm. Um, another runs a family lodge. Um, I guess Sean, the that one Kowalski brother, he goes to work for his wife and Emma yes. in the landscaping yes, business. Yes, she owns the landscaping business, so he works for her. So um, that's kind of fun. I mean, there, I think Meg, Meg Benjamin's Konigsberg series, she certainly has a mix Um you know the uh, hero of the last book is a what is he a part time bouncer and a part time police officer? I didn't read the last one. I'm actually adding it to my list of things to read because I didn't. Know no, it's it was the second one. to the last one. That's with Kit Maldonado as the hero and or heroine and Nando as the hero. He's the oh he, by the time he gets his own book, he, he's the new assistant chief of police. Of course, and uh. Suzanne Brockman's Troubleshooter series, um, she did have, uh, there's another example, you never have any privates um, as heroes in uh, military books, but uh, Kenny is, I think, pretty low on the ranking totem pole. I can't remember exactly what his um, status is, but it wasn't very high, and he gets hitched to a millionaire's daughter. I just finished reading a contemporary male-male romance by Heidi Cullinan and Marie Sexton, where one of the heroes is a pawn shop owner. He owns a pawn shop and he bought it from a family member, but he runs the shop and lives over it. And it's connected to his character because you find out that his mother never throws anything out and thinks everything is valuable, whereas he is able to pretty quickly appraise the value of anything that walks through the door and can can decide what is and what isn't actually junk. The other hero got involved with this woman who wanted a really, really luxurious lifestyle, and she grew up you know, going to the country club and sort of looked at the stuff that she that he could buy her as a signal of whether or not it was a good relationship. And so when they break up, he's left with all these ridiculous kitchen appliances and maxed out credit cards because she wasn't going to be happy unless she had a panini press. So he starts hawking some of the stuff to get money. And he dropped out of veterinary school because he wasn't doing very well and is now the receptionist in a, in a veterinary clinic. But what's interesting, and I'm going to spoil the book a little bit, by the end, he is developing agency. And it's not just developing agency by recognizing that he is attracted to this other guy and recognizing that he wants to have a relationship with a man, but also recognizing that he is in charge of his life, not someone else, and that he can take steps to do what it is he wants to do. So by the end, and I'm spoiling, so, you know, sorry, um, he's going to enroll in veterinary school and he's going to get a better job than being the receptionist because he does have a talent and he does know what he wants to do. The other hero, whose name is Emmanuel, but everyone calls him L, he owns a pawn shop. There's a, there's a lot of negative stereotypes associated with pawn shopping, especially uh, fencing and, and being a, a front for stolen goods. And he says right up front that he has a great business because the cops know he does not, he does fence, not things. fence things. I didn't know that the pawn shop had that bad of a reputation after the 
Pawn Stars oh, pawn Discovery stars. Show. Do you think that there's a correlation between the number of shows like Pawn Stars and American Pickers and shows about tattoo artists and shows about people who do very specific and interesting jobs that you don't necessarily hear about, even um, Mike Rose show dirty jobs do you think that that has an influence on the heroes that are portrayed in romances because those are the men that we're seeing on portrayed in reality television do you think there's a correlation there oh sure i think that the rise of sopranos sons of anarchy and shows like that have increased the um taste for the anti-hero the criminal the underworld yep i agree with you there and it's interesting i I'm never able to trace the timeline of these things, but I wonder which one came first or if they happened at almost about the same time. Um, I would say no. I would say that it's more likely that television influences um, romance writers. I I guess I just don't see a lot of, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see a lot of genre busting from romance writers. You mean like creating things that are far outside of the established sets of of rules right that's a good question though is there or has there been a genre busting romance writer that's really taxing my brain i can't answer that question (laughs) just look at um for example twilight twilight feeds off of very stereotypical romance tropes yep yep so that was one of the the depiction of of wealth and lack of agency was one of the problems i had with the first book and i took a peek at the first page it might have been the third or the fourth one and by then Bella's got an American Express black card and, you know, unlimited money and she's driving this really high-end car. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I have no interest in this. This is – I'm over. All of your problems will be solved with money. And we're- the books that I really like most that depict people of not executive-level jobs are the ones where they don't win the lottery in the end and they are happy exactly as they are. I find, it, I find that much more satisfying and enjoyable because it seems like it's a bigger dose of realism to me. Not everyone's going to win the lottery, marry a millionaire, and have limitless wealth that they don't have to worry about money anymore. Knowing that the hero and the heroine have agency and security and are happy where they are is much more reassuring to me than, you know, hey, you you won the lottery or you married a really rich guy. I just think there needs to be balance. So I appreciate... Um, I mean, I think that the the fantasy of the really rich guy and the black Amex and the um, being uh, flown to Paris for a dinner is a fun um, story to read. But I also think that um, every genre needs balance and having the um, more accessible heroes and heroines finding contentment and happiness is uh, is good. I don't think that there, I don't think that um, one is qualitatively better than the other. I just think that there needs to be, you know, balance. I agree. I, I get very tired very quickly of the, the opulent wealth fantasy. I get very weary of it because A, sometimes it's not done correctly. And it, it's, you know, I'm having a really hard time articulating why. It's just that's not what I want to read. Very rarely is that what I want to read. Well, I enjoy it. I think that that's kind of fun, particularly if it is done correctly. Um, but it's just not something I want to read all the time. So that, like I said, I think the, there's plenty of room um, for, in the genre for, for each type of book. And we can yeah. see that there's success uh, on both sides, of, both ends of the spectrum 
for those books. I mean, I think if you look at um, the Sherilyn, uh, or uh, what is her name? Cherry Lynn from Sam Hain, her Leave Me Breathless has been super popular. Um, hit the New York Times bestseller list. I think it's been on there for like four weeks now. And it features a guy who is a part-time tattoo artist and part-time uh, band player. And uh, she works in her mother and father's sporting goods store. I mean, her family's pretty well off, but he, he doesn't come from much. So I think it just shows that there's a large um, appetite for every type of book out there. So the more variety we have, I think, the better off. So you're in more favor of a little bit more genre busting or genre edge pushing and shoving. Um, I mean, I don't know. I certainly, I, I don't know. I can't because I think about like Madeline Sheehan's book, um, Undeniable, which she markets as a romance, and it's very disturbing. Um, and there's a lot of kind of very disturbing books being self-published. Um, there's the uh, Anthea, oh, I can't remember her last name right now, but she writes about um, a woman who is beaten, tortured, raped, and uh, falls in love with her captor who Oy. eventually sends her to prison. And then uh. in the second book, um, she returns to him willingly. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Is that, is that genre pushing? And if so, is that where I want the genre to go? Probably not. <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm with you there. But there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of non-con um, uh, fantasy stories, and I don't know if those, be- I, I don't know where those go. I, I, I don't want to be the one in charge of de- defining the genre. <laughs> no, I, I don't want that job either. I'm more than happy to have everyone else do it, and I just, I could not. So I, I don't know whether they belong. I, th- I certainly don't want to say that those are um, fantasies women shouldn't be having, mm-hmm. because I don't think that I'm in a place where I could say that. So should they belong in the romance genre? I don't, I don't know. One thing I like about romance is that there's room for a lot of different kinds of stories because you can build many different characters and situations out of courtship and, um, you know, the establishing of a relationship. When I think of the, the things that are different that I want to see, oddly, very little of it has to do with the sexual content. I more often skim sex scenes than don't. And, which makes me sound like I'm, you know, quite tightly wound and very prudish. And I'm not actually. I just I, – I haven't read a very well-written sex scene very often. And, and, and as soon as the writing well, becomes body parts, I change – I start turning pages. When I look at you, – You have very – but you have like a lot of um, triggers. Like there are certain words that you just hate. Oh, yeah. I got a lot of words I hate. I can deal with them, but I like to complain about them. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm always surprised when you like kind of a racy story because <laughs> – it's not the sexual content, it's the language used to describe the sex. That's what bothers me. The sexual content, not at all. But good gravy, just there has to be a better way to describe sex than the same words that we've always used. And there are sometimes when I'm reading and I think to myself, I could have read this same scene in any other number of books because the language is so repetitive and similar. And I remember reading one of the Julianne Long books and thinking, whoa, she writes really good sex scenes because I'm not reading the same phrases and descriptions that I always read. There's no waves and cresting and stars and peaks and plummeting and falling. And 
I understand it's hard to describe an orgasm and there's only so many words that exist to describe all these body parts. But when I read the same words over and over, I get really irritated. My, my problem is not so much the sexual content or the relative um, explicitness. It's the cliche and the redundant words that start to bother me. But I, I think it's ironic because you like that Katie Porter book, which I thought was hilariously bad. Oh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the, uh, the one with the, uh, the waitress and the um, Air Force pilot where they're playing roles and he's all tortured because he likes people to dress up and that's terrible kink. Yeah, but his terrible kink was her dressing up like in stockings. I know. Yes, it was. It was very. Tame. I mean, that's so ludicrous to me that I'm embarrassed <laughs> for him. <laughs> See, I thought it was. I thought it fit his character. I thought that he was all wrapped up in thinking that there was something wrong with him, and really there wasn't. But I don't know that 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 I that I could buy that I understood. Like, there's something really wrong with me that I like this. Well, no, actually not, but. He's not going to tell anybody about it. So how would anyone but telling him be telling him, no, there's nothing wrong with you for liking stockings. Although. But he must not have ever talked about sex with any of his buddies because that is like the, his fantasies were the most mild form of, I, I mean, it, it's like a fantasy you'd see on Modern Family at seven o'clock on ABC or something. It's just so ridiculously banal. It, it, it's like he's never seen uh, was he raised in an Amish community? Was he uh, a Quaker? I mean, I can't, I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> but then you also read a lot more um, erotica than I do. Yeah, but I think any normal male who's been on the internet for five minutes would think, oh, a Stopping. woman's dressing up in a Halloween costume? Normal. <laughs> I, in that situation, I totally bought it. I, I, I agree with you. His angst about his like of stockings and dress up went on for a bit too long. Even, even after he was clearly enjoying it, and then she was clearly on board with all of the role playing they did. His his resistance to his own acceptance of his relatively mild kink did carry on too long. But it it to me it fit his character, and to me it didn't seem that ridiculous. What I tend to hate is where. The only thing that draws the heroine to the hero or the hero to the heroine is, wow, I can picture her naked and I really want a boner right now. Like that's, that's it. Like, wow, I would like to stick my dick in that. And that's, that is why they are together. And I have a really hard time believing that that is the only reason why people are drawn to each other. I mean, if all you require is a hole in a heartbeat, there's a lot of people out there. Why that particular one? And sometimes the why is the attraction happening beyond, gee, I really want to bone her, is explored. And sometimes it's, wow, the boning is really good and you must be the one for me. The end. That I get really tired of. And that's an oversimplified summary of some of the books I've read. But that's that's my big problem. There has to be a reason why it's that person, not that they're available and there. However, I, I think, I think our, our tastes in um, – I think it's funny that our tastes in books so so rarely line up. And I've been trying to figure out what it is that we do, what, what it is that works about the books we have in common because most of the time what I like, you're like, no, nah, it doesn't work for me. You know, there's a certain trope that you might like and uh, that overlaps with a book that I might like that has a, you know, a story. I, I don't know. We, we definitely don't have. Um, we don't have anything in common. It's kind of funny. Oh, well. So what... What contemporary romances, aside, you know, including the ones we've mentioned, what contemporary romances do you recommend that, that look at heroes who are not the 
familiar billionaire. I mean, I think the books that focus on a man's um, financial status are often the ones where the heroine has more money than he does, and he has to struggle with coming to grips with that, which is not necessarily a man who's blue, a blue-collar worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes I find those stories to be very dull because I'm just like, get over it. You know, she has more money than you. Either you love her or you don't. So I get very impatient with those storylines. I, I can't even remember one that I would recommend. Yeah, I, I, I have a problem with that. Um, I have a problem with that as being the basis of the conflict as well because it's never going to go away and it's never going to be fully resolved. It, it's, it's, I think it's very hard to portray. I am now totally over this issue that caused us conflict for how many pages? I am now totally over it because I don't, I don't think it's possible to get totally over something that's not ever going to go away. You can change how you feel about it, but you're still going to have those – reactions to things. But I wonder if part of the reason that small town and small town and small town contemporary romances are more popular or have been popular is because they portray heroes that are sometimes slightly outside the established familiar roles. There is always a seal, there's often a doctor, there's usually a cop or forest ranger or professional cyclist, but there's also people who are somewhat more ordinary that you would know. There's a bar owner. There's a guy who works in a restaurant. There's people who inhabit jobs that you are personally maybe more familiar with than, you know, billionaires who not everyone knows. That may be an element, I think, that draws people to the small town romance. Sure. I could buy that. I I think I can't figure out why people like certain books. So uh, (laughs) all I can say is why I like a certain book. It is, it is hard to figure out why someone likes something that you don't like. No, or just um, sometimes I can't figure out why I like a book. And it's not even like I like the book. For example, um, I read this Fallen Crest High um, self-published book. I think it was written serially by a person by the name of Tijon on Wattpad. And then she bundled it together into a book and is selling it on Kindle for like a dollar. Uh-huh. And... Um, I thought that the book was titled Falcon Crest High because it's totally like a soap opera. And I thought, oh, (laughs) this author is like transporting a bunch of catty, fighting, petty people from Dallas to um, high school. I would totally read Falcon Crest High, especially if it was next door to Dynasty Academy. Well, and it has these two rival schools, the Academy, and there is even a group called the Academy Elite, which is the super popular people from the Academy. Of course. And then there's the public school, which ordinarily would be, um, you know, less than, but two of the most popular kids go to public to play on their football team. Of course. So uh, it's it's. It's not very well written, but I read it in, and didn't put it down even once. So I I don't know. As I said in my Goodreads um, review of it, I'm not sure what it says about me, but I'm sure it's nothing good. <laughs> <laughs> I was writing about that this week on my site about what is the compulsion that makes me keep reading and what can make me keep reading even though there are things that I've identified that I don't like, like repeated words, cliches, bad dialogue things that are misspelled or misused, even when those things happen and I keep reading, what's in the compulsion to make me keep reading? And what is, why does that compulsion 
make me continue to read a book, even though I may have already identified that I'm not entirely enjoying it. And then within that compulsion, there's the crack where you find a book where you just can't put it down because it's crack. And I've been watching everyone on Twitter go completely bananas over the Kristen Ashley books, which everyone I know, including you and Angie has told me, I will not like them. I should not. You know, yeah, think- you'll hate them. Yeah, exactly. I can't, I can't see anything about those books that would appeal to you in any fashion. And yet I'm looking at everyone going bananas thinking, well, maybe I should try one because everyone's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to like this, but it's so good. What's the next one? And then, you know, two days later, I just read 600,000 Kristen Ashley books and I haven't slept in four days. When's the next one? And there's crack in there. Why Why is the crack not going to work on me? Like, why shouldn't I read those? Did Laura Lee crack ever work on you? Never. Then then this is just, you just got to chalk this up. <laughs> so not for you. All like, right. Um, like, for example, um, uh, uh, Karen Marie Moaning. Everyone loves her books. Um, they had been got, they had been low priced the, um, the first like four. Yeah. Before the fifth book came out. And so I bought them and I saved them because I, I understood that they all ended on a big cliffhanger. So I bought them and I saved them. And before book five came out, I read them and then I got book five from the publisher. And I was just like, wow, really? I don't get the love for this series at all. I was so bored in books two through four and I'm confused <laughs> in book five. And, you know, um, so I just think that there are just some books you just, and so, you know, when Iced came out, um, people are all over that. And I'm just like, eh, I have no desire. You just gotta let it go. <laughs> I'm not going to buy one. I'm not going to try one because you keep telling me, no, this is not going to be something that you enjoy. But it is. it can be feel very alienating when you watch people go completely insane over a particular book that you know you're not going to like and that it – what is the crack? You know, like trying to figure out what is the crack in those pages that is making people keep going. Even though everyone can acknowledge and look at the flaws of them, you're going to keep reading them because they are that good. That something is, Something is in that compulsion to keep reading and I'm sort of fascinated by what it is and how it's different for every reader. Well, I think for Kristen Ashley, because people will email me and say, well, what authors like Kristen Ashley? And I just don't have an answer for that. That So I think that she's writing something that no one else is really writing. Which is um, what? Extremely bad possessive, bad boy possessive characters? Dark and anti-hero? No, because um, <laughs> many of her heroes are not that. I, I um, There's a lot of female friendship in them. There's, I think that's something we're all very starved for, so I agree with you there. Um, it's There are moments of funniness. It's very deep, deep point of view, stream of consciousness, that I think that in professional books are edited out because it's not terribly good writing, like a good technique, mm-hmm. but it can be done well. Um, it can be very engaging. And compelling to keep reading. Yeah, compelling because you're really deep inside that person's psyche. Um, I, I think that uh, she's, she takes directions that are sometimes shocking to you. Like you're like, whoa, I did not see that coming. I didn't expect that. I don't even know if I'm okay with that. Um, but... Uh, um, I mean, her most successful series, I think, is this uh, Dream Man series. And um, I don't know. It's just the way that dynamic plays out. I, 
the 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 closest author that I can uh, define as early Linda Howard. In fact, I have so, said to some people that the Rock Chick series are the Blair books by Linda Howard, and then the other books are kind of like early Dream Man. You know that sort of thing, and I, I just know based upon your loathing for. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a Linda Howard reader. It's true, Linda Howard. That this just these are books that are just not going to appeal to you. And I can, I mean, I understand what people say to me. How can you read these? These are terribly written. I mean, I'm like, yeah, I totally agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> that takes the teeth out of the insult, doesn't it? But uh, there's something really compelling about her work, and I'll be really interested to see what happens in her partnership with Grand Central because I think there's always the danger that the um, that the professional editing will edit out whatever has made her voice so compelling. Yes, they will she's, edit you. They will edit out the crack. She just really does have a truly unique voice, and um, I don't know that other authors could replicate her. Although I would say that Madeline Sheehan. Um, channeled Kristen Ashley in many of her dialogue, much of her dialogue. It was very strange. I felt like, you know, someone on another message board said, I wonder if this is Kristen Ashley writing under a pen name. And I'm like, (laughs) not. But it's, I mean, the voice was so close. You really felt like this author was riffing off of her. Is part of the, is is one of the possibilities as to the draw and the, and the level of compelling, um, reading in these books, the fact that it is such deep point of view that you you don't know what's happening with any other other characters. Is it only one point of view, or does the point of view switch? Generally speaking, only her point of view, which means that the hero is something. Uh, if there is a hero, is something of a mystery. You 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 have to take her word for it, even though you know that she may not be a reliable narrator. But you don't get his point of view, so you don't know whether or not his behavior is benevolent or mal- or malevolent. Is that is that right? Well, no, because you always know. I mean, uh, I'm gonna have to read these books, and then I'm gonna be mad. <laughs> oh, I wish you wouldn't, because I just don't think you'll enjoy them. I don't even know if you'd make it through one of them. Um. The, uh, no, Sarah, don't do it. Trust me. Just just stay away. <laughs> well, I mean, go ahead and read it, but don't say we didn't warn you. No, um, exactly. <laughs> I'm aware of what I'm getting into. Her her heroes are very devoted. I mean, I, I don't think that you can mistake their actions for anything inappropriate. And I mean, you, not inappropriate, but um, yeah, malevolent. There's no malevolency toward the heroine. I mean, I guess that's, I don't know. You'll have to read them yourself. I think we all wonder what kind of hold she has over us. If you can figure it out, let us know. <laughs> uh, yeah, if I can figure it out, I'll let you know. I mean, look at Book Binge. You know, she gave uh, the Rock Check book two stars and can't stop reading. You know, it's that sort of. I know this is not good and I can't stop reading it anyway. Not only can you not stop, but you keep reading. Like I had to read, I think Angie said she read like 20 in a row, and I think I read like 14. That's insane to me. Like They're long. They're like epic novels. They're like 130,000 words apiece. Great day in the morning. Yeah, it's like reading. So Angie read like 40, and I read like 28, you know. (laughs) Good God. The level of detail in her books is just... But there's a lot of descriptions of things. 
Oh my God, too much. Like she, you, she really has a love of clothes and houses, particularly kitchens. So there's sort of a, and is it like high-end kitchens and high-end clothing or is it just random, random people's clothing? It's what she thinks is high-end kitchens. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. These sound like a really powerful train wreck for me. I remember in the night, in the Pimp Pimp Hero book, she goes into his apartment and she describes walking down the hall, taking a left, taking a right, taking two lefts, and then there's three doors. And then at the end of the hall, you take another right. And then I'm like, I have to to get out pencil and map this out. I felt like I went through a a rabbit's warren. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I can handle that. I'll have to, maybe I'll download a sample and see what I think. And that's all for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Soon we're going to be talking about things that authors get wrong about millionaires in romance fictions. Jane and I have many, many opinions and examples about how to get millionaires right and how to get them wrong. They don't drive Dotsons, I can promise you that. Harlequin has some things they'd like you to know. You can discover the stories that caught the attention and hearts of the Karina Press team if you check out their Best of 2012 at ebooks.karinapress.com slash best of 2012. The music you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater. This is a group called Deviations Project, composed of a producer named Dave Williams and a violinist named Oliver Lewis. Their album is called Adeste Fiddles. And this track is, if you haven't identified it, their version of Three Ships. I really like the bass line. I'm having a hard time not nodding my head to it. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. And if you did, or you want to tell us what you thought, or you tried to interrupt us so you could tell us what you were thinking and then it didn't work because we're recorded, you can always email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a message at our Google Voice number, which is 1201-371-DBSA. That is a U.S. number. Please don't forget to give us a name and where you're calling from so we can include your message into an upcoming podcast. And we have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast. As always, Jane and I wish you happy holidays and the very, very best of reading. 